Every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m., WRFL invites you to Office Hours, real-world conversations with UK professors. No appointment necessary. Representing the 16 colleges across campus, Office Hours brings professors from every corner of UK to share their adventures in academia. Go beyond the syllabus and learn more about the people behind the research. We'll be demystifying higher education one interview at a time. Stop by every Wednesday afternoon. Office Hours is available online via wrfl.fm or on the airwaves on 88.1 FM, Radio Free Lexington. All right, and we're here with a pre-recorded interview for Office Hours on 88.1 WRFL. My name is David Cole, and I'm here with our guest today, Dr. Steve Alvarez. How you doing? Hanging in there, chilling. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show, or being a part of the show. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, let's go right into it. The first thing I want to ask you about is this uh, research project of yours focused on the city of Lexington. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Mexington, Kentucky. You've right. got an online account of the research at mexington.com. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Yes, sir. Um, can you tell us about that project? What is it? Yeah, well, the the Mexington project is is uh, basically an archive of my field work happening in the uh, well, the barrio, which I would call Mexington, which is uh, on the west side of the city, uh, close to the Cardinal Valley area. Uh, generally speaking, it's my work with the community. I do a lot of outreach, uh, K through twelve, with basically the, the community itself, the Latino immigrants. Not necessarily all Mexican, but in grand part, probably two thirds Mexican. Uh, It's just been based on um, doing community outreach, like I said, creative writing with students, uh, homework tutoring. Uh, I'm actually working on uh, a book project about uh, the outreach itself in in Mexington and also comparing it with some outreach I've done in New York City. Mm -hmm. Wow. How have you incorporated your research uh, on this topic into your role as a teacher here at UK? Oh, well... My understanding and the way I approach my my teaching is always based on the strengths of the students. Uh, These particular students in in Mexington are often discounted as being language deficient or maybe being underprepared, and certainly some of their uh, statistics under grades might might reinforce some of these ideas. But there's also, at least in my sense, of the value of the family happening among the Latin American immigrants. And oftentimes, blame gets placed on the parents for not being involved, but in my conversations with parents, speaking to parents and watching them help their children with homework, I realized they are involved, but in ways that possibly aren't re- recognized by institutions. So, in, in short, my, my outreach in the community has always taught me that we have to look at the community in order to understand what's happening in the classroom, but also take mm-hmm. what's going on in the classroom out back into the community. And for me, it's been very important to uh, make myself known among the community that I am a professor, but I'm also a first-generation college student and a Mexican-American. Mm-hmm. And it was always very important for me to understand that I've received mentors, luckily, in my life, and now it's my turn to give back. That's, that's real cool. Yeah, no, I love it. Um, I'd like to talk a bit about this Education Abroad course that you've got coming up. Um, yeah. You're taking a group of students in 2015 to Oaxaca, Mexico. Yes, sir. Uh, what is the focus of this education abroad opportunity? Well, uh, very similar to, to my uh, research. My research, I'm an ethnographer. Uh, I, I do qualitative research in order to cover some of the uh, lived experiences of people. Uh, like I said, uh, Latin, particularly in Mexington, uh, among the Latin American immigrants. Mm. My intention is to take some of those same ethnographic methods in Oaxaca and introduce these to students. So students then will be also understanding the lived experiences of people in Oaxaca, but also Retur- uh, turning it back on themselves as researchers. What does it mean to be a researcher, English-dominant, largely student, studying in Mexico? 
and also to really think of their position as a researcher as they're out in the field. So in short, my intention is that students can get learn about this alternative form of research, which is sometimes less focused on library research, but actually doing field work, field research. Mm -hmm. So it just makes a lot of sense for students to be out in the field, especially studying abroad, and be in a very uncomfortable kind of position, and use that as grounds to, to really get critical. Right. Why Oaxaca specifically? Uh, Oaxaca is a magical place, as, as anyone who's ever been there can tell you. <laughs> um, it's just uh, an ancient culture, a living culture. UNESCO recognizes it as a World Heritage Site. Uh, very rich in indigenous culture, rich in the arts, rich in its history, very rich in its cuisine. Uh, it's called mole, which is a sort of spicy chocolate sauce, originates from Oaxaca. Last time I was there, I had the good fortune of eating grasshoppers. Mm -hmm. They're actually quite tasty. Uh, don't let anyone fool you. It's just a very, very rich culture, one of the most unique places definitely in the Western Hemisphere and certainly in Mexico. It just... Roughly, how big is Oaxaca? It's a state, right? Yeah, it's a state. It's in southern Mexico, uh, largely considered indigenous in, in mm -hmm. terms of population. Uh, it overlaps with the area called the Mixtec region. Uh, the big group there would be the folks who are called Zapotecs, and there's still a living culture. In fact, people still speak Zapotec, really? and they are precursors even to the Aztecs. It's a very ancient living culture. It's a fairly big state, but it's also one of the poorest states. In Mexico, largely, as I said, some of the because of its uh, large indigenous population. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of geographic size, I would say it's probably somewhere around the size of Kentucky, actually. So it's a fairly big place. Uh, there's also a huge migration of folks from Oaxaca who come to the United States, and also including Kentucky. All right. The brochure for this course mentions excursions to quote such notable sites as mm -hmm. Puerto Escondido and Monte Alban. Yeah. Um, and one of those is a port town. Oh, yes. And the other is an archaeological site. Yes, sir. So what kind of work will you be doing that takes you from a port town to an archaeological site and all these other places that you've got listed? Mm -hmm. Well, the excursions themselves are, are for students to see the diversity of Oaxaca. I should say Puerto Escondido, very interesting place. It has a, a giant influx of Italian immigrants, folks who have settled there since the, the fiscal crisis in Italy, mm -hmm. as, as well as folks from Quebec. It's um, also one of the greatest places in the world to go surfing. Which could be somebody's project. I right. won't say. I won't say no. <laughs> but in terms of uh, what it means in Oaxaca, it's part of it is to see the diversity of Oaxaca. Which part of it is uh, the state is desert. Some parts are mountainous, and then down by the beach, it's very much you know coastal, as it were. Uh, for students seeking out Monte Alban and some of the other sites, it's really to get them out in the field to, to record their experiences as well. But really, just to see uh, the diversity of the culture, and then to come back to write about that. Mm. So students will also not only will they be collecting images and artifacts on their visits, but really thinking of how their experience as travelers, and what that means to be a traveler, and their mm -hmm. position as privileged U.S. travelers at that, especially when they encounter some of the indigenous populations. So it'll be very important for students not to think of themselves as vacationers, right. or, or really to really think about their position in relation to these folks, and how power, privilege, and language, and to a degree even race and identity, become points of contact. And then we bring that back into their writing and, and try to put an anthropological perspective on what they're doing in terms of, you know, trying different foods, seeing different kinds of dress, but also experiencing uh, these diverse locations. Mm -hmm. 
Now, on the on the website, it's also listed as a service opportunity yeah. abroad, and right. you, you mentioned how it's very important not to just see yourself as a as a tourist. Right? Um, can you elaborate on that? Like, what kind of service will the students be doing? Yeah, there's different opportunities. So, uh, one opportunity would be to lead an English learning class with elementary students. Uh, the idea is that for students to be able to experience what it's like to be on the other side, that is to say, uh, someone who is teaching English rather than someone who is also a student of, of English. Mm-hmm. Um, but the hope is that to get students in contact with people who live in the area and uh, for them to be able to have some kind of a service that they can offer to the community rather than feel like you know they are the uh, recipients of some kind of service, that they should be receiving some kind of service. So it's very important for students to, to be acknowledged or to acknowledge that there are these differences, but ultimately students are geared towards an individual project, and if they choose to do something based more on service, then they can do that, which I would highly encourage, and I definitely will support. But if students feel, you know, after trying out the teaching of the class, this you know something they're not interested in, there are other avenues. One of the great things is that the ethnographic project will be individualized mm-hmm. based on the students' uh, expertise, but also what they feel most passionate about. So. Inevitably, I hope there will be students who are passionate about doing some of the teaching and service learning, and in which case I think that would produce very rich uh, ethnographies. All right. So if a student here were interested in you know, studying ethnography, doing some ethnography, or even studying Latin American culture mm-hmm. before this trip rolls around, uh, where would you suggest they start? Well, I do offer a course in the spring called Mexington which is an introduction to some of the, the uh, particularly Mexican migration in the area. I also uh, lead a research project at the Village Branch Library, and I'd welcome any student who might to participate, uh, either to learn about the process or to even be a participant in terms of the research. I've taught uh, ethnographic writing previously, and I've received incredible projects from students ranging from discovering Jewish ancestry to uh, focusing on, on Big Blue Madness, uh, <laughs> interviewing some of the people camping out, uh, some, some really incredible projects because I think students can understand and they can also recognize the value of looking to communities as sources of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So this is something I advocate highly and it's uh, generally speaking ethnographic or ethnography, excuse me, would be a, a method that folks would encounter in anthropology. But as a methodology, it's so flexible it could happen in any number of disciplines from uh, case histories in uh, psychology, uh, as a traditional ethnography, and in my field, the composition and rhetoric, where it's very important for us to figure out and also to see how communities uh, practice speaking, writing, making arguments. So, in short, I would just tell folks, keep an eye on me. I'll teach an <laughs> ethnography course somewhere down the future. All right, all right. Now, something I really want to talk to you about is the creative writing side of what you do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I was just doing some cursory research before we had this interview and it's just in the past three years you've done a whole lot (laughs) earned a PhD written and published two novels Mm -hmm. uh, continuing numerous research projects and churning out a fair amount of poetry yeah uh what kind of pace do you set for yourself when uh, you're uh, writing to be able to do so much? Uh, you know, I guess I drink a lot of coffee and I don't sleep a lot. <laughs> um, but it, well, that's actually true. Uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that I've written, it's stuff that I've written for years, and it's just never had a chance to be published. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm really glad that some of this stuff is, is finding its way out. I have a, a well over 1,000-page work that I've been working on for years, a, gi- a gigantic epic, and I kind of take pieces of that to publish. But also... 
as I said before, it's been important for me to just take this passion I have for writing out into the community. Mm -hmm. uh, writing has taught me a lot about my identity. It's taught me a lot about uh, my pedagogy, and it's really just fueled my desire to always learn. So if, if I can, I would actually like to read a poem. Not one of my poems. I'm, a, I'm not that narcissistic, although sometimes. <laughs> but this is a poem I'm, I'm actually very proud of. This was written by a student, a local student. Uh, this student is undocumented. Uh, so I will just read her first name as Monica. I won't give her last name. She wrote this uh, poem inspired by something we had read with some Chicano authors and also with the position that's happening with uh, the case of uh, comprehensive immigration reform being pushed to the back burner yet again. Mm -hmm. So is it okay if I read this? Oh, absolutely. All right. So this poem is entitled, Judge Me. You judge me without knowing the reasons. You judge me for being here illegally, for being an alien and taking jobs from Americans, for not paying taxes. You hate me for being here. But do you know my motives for being here? I came here to live better, to dream better, to make my life for my family better. Oh, okay, so I'm not American enough to live the American dream? Hey, guess what? Last time I checked, this is a nation of immigrants, and immigrants created that dream. And this land belonged to none of us. But you can judge me, and maybe I'm not American as you think you are, but you and I are not actually different. If you were in a different country, if you were poor, if your family was starving, if violence was everywhere you looked, Let's say there was a better way, a better place, up north, a land with opportunities. Wouldn't you go? You wish you could go there legally, but you're poor. You risk it with your family. You come, you cross to come north to work, work hard for your family, waiting to have an opportunity to make yourself and your family citizens. But people don't know that. They judge you. They call you alien, wetback, and illegal. They say you take their jobs, that you make them pay higher taxes. But you don't know that. You can't hear that. You're too busy working. Working because you believe someday you'll be a citizen. Or if not you, then your children. You have so much hope for your children. You want to pay more taxes. You will do so if it gives more job opportunities. But those people who judge you don't know that. They criticize you before they know you, before they see you outside the shadows. See immigration through my eyes, please. I'm not a green, big-headed creature from outer space. And, uh... We'll just end there. Monica, of course, very cool poem. I was very pleased to hear that and, and uh, very touching when she read this. And, and this is exactly what I'm talking about. I think this is the strengths of the community. Mm -hmm. This uh, speaks directly to the lived experience of not just Monica, but thousands of students, not only in Kentucky, but across this country. And for me, to be able to read this kind of stuff, and especially something very powerful like that, it says a lot for what youth are going through, but also to understand that there is power in these words. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think taking students uh, to Oaxaca will also be looking to express, you know, in the same way, through poetry, through photography, through various means, our identities and understanding that our identities impinge on other identities. Absolutely. And that's just very powerful, like, declarative type of poem. She did an excellent job. Yeah, it's really cool. I, I really like the end that I, she's not a green-headed creature from outer space. She's <laughs> a nice that imagery kind of there. Alien. That's right. And, you know, I know the listeners can't really see this, but mm -hmm. it's worth noting that there are just, from what I can see, some really strong line breaks there. It's, it's, it's a very nice poem. Now, it's, you know, if and we can't talk about specifics on this person, but like, yeah. do you know if she had a lot of experience before 
putting this together? Speaking to her, she told me she hated writing, actually. (laughs) Uh, And I think the kind of writing she disliked was the the sort that we're familiar with, uh, research papers, uh, what did you do last summer, kind of thing like this. But this was a different kind of writing. She had no idea she could write about this stuff. Mm -hmm. And to be able to see it in print for her was a real treat, and also to be able to share this with her family. And uh, really, to get her to realize that, you know, writing is powerful, it's beautiful, and you don't have to just do the five-paragraph essay. <laughs> you don't even have to write for a grade. Imagine that. So she, she did say she did enjoy writing after she was able to read stories by people like her. Mm-hmm. And I think that probably also speaks a lot to her experience. That's really cool. You know, we talked about this book that you've got here that you mm-hmm. read the poem out of a bit sure. before the recording, but you know, let's, let's talk about it again. How, what Tell us about this book that you put together. Yeah, this is the the second edition. This is called Living Out Loud. Uh, What happened was when I first moved to Kentucky, uh, maybe a few weeks after, is when this uh, deferred action happened, which was a um, not quite the Dream Act, but a way of of undocumented youth being able to work in the country, also to be able to get um, a driver's license. So I went to go help out with the fair, and I met several students and teachers. Uh, After they found that I was a writing professor, asked me if I would do some writing workshops. Mm-hmm. Turns out this particular high school has a Latino club who met uh, after school on Wednesdays, and I just started going to their meetings, uh, bringing in some writing from various Latino poets. Students started doing some writing, and they asked, well, what are we going to do with this? So I said, let's make a book. Uh, that was the first edition. The first edition, uh, we sold hundreds of copies. We were able to actually raise $2,000 to uh, use as a scholarship for an undocumented student because undocumented students are eligible for state or federal aid. Uh-huh. Uh, we actually had that uh, ceremony at the Martin Luther King Center has also showed support for much of this work. Uh, this is the second edition and after the first, we just wanted to continue what we were working on. Uh, this has students from all over the world, from Africa, uh, from Asia, South America, North America, different places, uh, the Caribbean, and so many students were just excited about getting their writing out. So I have the, uh, the intention for this next year to extend it from kindergarten to college, and try to include as many voices as possible, particular students um, who are coming from uh, uh, immigrant backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, to just encourage writing in, in various languages. That's one of the great things about this book. You'll see folks writing in Creole, uh, folks writing Ethiopian scripts, uh-huh. uh, English and Spanish mixed together, and that was one of the things students asked me, is it okay if I switch back and forth, and that was something I encouraged. It's like, absolutely. Yeah, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I agree. Oh, that's... So, what encouraged... Was this part of Maxington, or was this a separate project that you've been putting together? It's all together, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, really, it's about uh, literacy in communities, uh, the way folks are using language, the way language is actually happening in communities. Uh, for me, it's it's all geared towards being out in the community. Outreach, uh, mm-hmm. for me, has been very big. It's been what's kept me grounded as a human being, away from the ivory tower sometimes. But also, it's been uh, pivotal for me to just become a member of this community. One of the difficult things of an ethnographer is you have to first gain rapport of a community before you can actually write about the community. So this has been ways for me to enter the community, to be a member, but also to build trust with the community so I can speak with these stories and do this kind of research. Otherwise, I'd hate to be a charlatan who's just going into the community as some kind of colonizer, taking their stories and leaving. Mm. Uh, this is a way for us to keep these stories, but also to use this book as a teaching tool. So it's available in libraries, uh, college libraries, K-12 through libraries, 
public libraries. I've actually taught this when I went to China last summer in Shanghai. Students in Shanghai really enjoyed reading about the situation of immigrants in Kentucky, and they found very, very compelling. So mm -hmm. it's an all-purpose book. I, I really, the important thing is I see some of the young Latino students reading these stories, and they can see themselves in these stories. And that, to me, is, is the first step, especially to kind of develop this sort of critical consciousness, which is uh, very important for students to understand their social conditions and also what, where they fit in in terms of this, you know, this, this social structure. Right. So what, in your personal background, mm -hmm. encouraged you to work in this Mexington, Kentucky project yeah. to put together these, like, literary collections and just to bring all of this forward? Wow, you know, I, sometimes I ask myself that. <laughs> I, I think it's really it's just a passion. I, I previously uh, spoken to this that I'm I'm a first generation Mexican American student, uh, college student, the first person in my family to earn a PhD. Uh, my parents uh, both have GEDs, but they dropped out of school first. Mm -hmm. And it was always very important for me to understand why do I have this opportunity to go to college? What's so special about me? I feel like there's nothing special about me. I just felt very fortunate. But then I realize all throughout every level of school I, I've ever had, there's always been a mentor. There's always been someone who, who reached out to me. In fact, the people who reached out to me first were my writing teachers because they said I was a good writer, which I didn't recognize. I had no idea I was a writer. And I realized that that was very encouraging, and it taught me to look forward, but also it taught me to be reflective on my own identity. So fast forward now as a professor, I think the same way that I'm in a position to be the mentor mm -hmm. and to extend myself into the community, but also to hopefully reach students who maybe didn't know they were great writers, to mm -hmm. realize that you are a great writer and this is, you know, this is something you can be. Too often, Mexican-Americans, we don't see ourselves as professors. Um, sometimes we don't see Mexican-American folks in schools besides driving the bus or working in the cafeteria, rarely as teachers. So I always make it a point to let the students know that uh, you know my parents were janitors, and, and that's something I'm very proud of, that has dignity. And I didn't get here where I'm at on my own. Uh, I've had a lot of support. And I think it's important for students to recognize the dignity of their families. Even if their parents aren't educated, there's still a lot there. There's a lot of strength, there's a lot of power, and there's just a lot of love. And I think that's where it generates from, especially with the family values that Latinos carry, in particular in Kentucky. And I think that's one thing that carries over among the groups who are already established in Kentucky, because there is such a sense of strong family values. Mm -hmm. And I think that's oftentimes why folks here can look to Latino families as, as being American. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> it's great stuff. I, you know, I really enjoy talking to the students. They inspire me every day. They teach me a lot. And then it comes back to my classroom, and I'm always impressed by every student I meet because I know that there's a lot behind, uh, you know, the few the few minutes we have in class. Mm -hmm. That there's a lot of context that everyone brings to a classroom. It's something I think is really important to mm -hmm. ask anyone we have on the show who does creative writing yeah. is, uh, where does inspiration for your work come from, and, and not just from like. Mm -hmm. I guess I'll say real life situations, yeah. but also like what other artists do you look up to or have looked up to that mm -hmm. you have inspired your work? Yeah, well, let me see. Uh, in terms of writers, I mean, for a long time it was always James Joyce, James mm -hmm. Joyce and Ezra Pound. Particularly the contours of Ezra Pound were, were very inspiring because of the way he, he brought in history but also moved between languages. You know, he'd be writing in English, all of a sudden he'd switch to Latin, then the French, uh, then he would drop Chinese characters various reasons. 
But it's interesting because as he was doing this, um, I realized some of this, the folks I was doing my research with, particularly little kids, were doing the same thing mm-hmm. naturally and not any kind of any aesthetic intent. So ultimately, I would say I'm inspired by the way languages mesh, different languages mesh. In my own experience, it's been learning Spanish, even though I am Mexican-American, my first language was English. But learning Spanish really inspired me to... Uh, extend the boundaries of English, if you would, and we can just get rid of those boundaries, knocking down all the borders, <laughs> mixing the languages, and then after that, it became a lot of uh, Latin American poets and writers who really got into me. But in terms of probably my largest poetic influence, I would have to say Charles Olson. Uh, he wrote this really great book called The Maximus Poems, which was this epic of, of his life mm-hmm. in many ways. And then I realized that everyone lives an epic but not all of us write about it. So that's where a lot of my work came from. And as my identity shifts, I can see different themes emerging in my writing. But I would say where it's at right now, it has a lot to do with looking back to Mesoamerican history, uh, the era of colonization, and my own experience growing up on uh, Arizona-New Mexico, or Arizona-Mexico border. Excuse me. You're listening to Office Hours on 88.1 WRFL. My name's David Cole, here with boardrunner extraordinaire Brian connors Mikey. And our guest this week, live guest this week, Dr. Brian Fry. How are you doing, sir? Uh, that's great. Actually, it's just Professor Fry. I'm not a, I don't have a PhD, so I'm not a doctor. Ah, my mistake. <laughs> I apologize, man. Of philosophy or otherwise. Oh. Yeah, no problem. Right to the interview. <laughs> uh, you teach several courses focused around aspects of law that concern artists and art organizations, mm-hmm. uh, specifically copyright, intellectual property, stuff like that. Uh, can you elaborate on what you teach within those sorts of courses? Right. Uh, so I teach at the law school. I'm an assistant professor at the UK College of Law. And uh, as you mentioned, I teach a lot of intellectual property related classes. So I teach a survey class covering patent law, copyright law, trademark law, as well as kind of para IP things like trade secret and uh, right of publicity questions. I also teach a a full-length class focused on copyright law, and I actually have an online open-source copyright casebook I've created for that class that anyone can access. Um, And then I also, at UK, teach a class on um, what's called nonprofit organizations, but I think you could could be clearer to call it charity law, almost, Mm -hmm. uh, because the class is focused on the um, creation, management, uh, operation, oversight, and a potential dissolution of charitable organizations. Uh, and then previously, when I was a visiting professor at Hofstra Law School in Long Island, I also taught uh, specialized seminar classes in art law as well as law and popular culture, which I, I taught as sort of a, uh, a class in law and customary norms. So specifically, I think the intellectual property, specifically copyright class, as well as the charity law class, are both relevant to to the respective concerns of artists with respect to intellectual property and arts institutions, really, with respect to to charity law. Any person creating an original work, so a creative work of any kind, is going to be... um, is going to be engaging, whether they know it or not, with issues of copyright, both their own copyright and whatever it is they create, and potential infringement of copyright of works created by other people that they incorporate into their own works into one way or another. And a lot of artists kind of struggle with this dialectic of ownership 
and and use. And then the case of charity law, of course, most arts organizations are many arts organizations anyway are charitable organizations, uh, meaning that they exist for a public benefit, that they are tax exempt, whether or not they've applied for formal tax exemption under federal law with the IRS, uh, and address similar issues in many cases around kind of short-term management in uh, in a day-to-day sense, as well as kind of long-term strategic planning, which is often an issue for arts organizations. So uh, I kind of see my teaching and scholarship both focused on these two poles these two kind of kind of core disciplinary areas mm-hmm. that relate to uh, what I have the kind of areas of human endeavor that I have a particular interest in so I have a, an art background both as an artist myself as well as a programmer of primarily films and videos and also uh, someone who writes about films and videos. So I, I see a sort of synergy between what I do in my creative life and what I do as a legal scholar, which can be creative too, although not as um, <laughs> it doesn't foreground the creativity necessarily in the same way that other forms of work do. And those areas that I teach in and that I write in, uh, I try to also incorporate in my community work. So I'm very involved in the nonprofit community, both in New York, where I used to live, and in Lexington, where I've lived for the last couple of years. So among other things, with a former law student, I recently created a new charity called Kentucky Lawyers for the Arts, which provides essentially a a referral service between artists and arts organizations that need pro bono assistance with Mm -hmm. some kind of legal or law-related question, and local attorneys who are interested in providing pro bono services in the arts community. So it's sort of like a like a matchmaking service almost <laughs> for artists and lawyers who can provide them with free pro bono assistance. In addition, I'm a, a board member at LexArts and I'm involved in the LexArts Business Volunteers for the Arts initiative. And the idea there is to provide a similar kind of referral service, although I think a more robustly managed one between members of the business community and arts organizations that need consulting assistance in um, developing their organization, growing their organization, and learning how to better serve their community. So sort of all these different things come come together. Wow. All right. It's quite plateful there. <laughs> like, uh, you mentioned that you have a background in the arts, and I'm just wondering if you could maybe get more specific in that for us. Like, explain to us, how does that background translate into you working in law the way that you do? Sure. Uh, so I studied film history and philosophy as an undergraduate mm-hmm. and then went to art school in San Francisco to get a Master of Fine Arts in, in filmmaking. So I, I made films on celluloid film almost exclusively that were intended to be shown in an art world context that could mean like a museum or a gallery or perhaps a kind of a screening series directed at an, a kind of a fine art audience. So uh, I moved to New York after that and lived in New York for about, well, for many years in all told, but for about five years I was in New York making films, showing films. Uh, I ran a weekly film series showing primarily experimental and uh, ephemeral films with Mm -hmm. a friend of mine. And we ran that for 
I think it was four years, so it was a couple hundred programs we did, and writing about films for various publications, including Millennium Film Journal, Cineast, Film Comment, etc. And uh, and then uh, eventually I decided that I was going to go to law school, and I actually didn't really incorporate the art element so much into my law school slash legal practice initially, but it crept its way back in eventually when I wasn't looking, in a sense. So uh, I went to law school at NYU, and then I practiced for a few years at a big law firm in New York called Sullivan and Cromwell, which is basically the Wall Street firm where we represent clients like Goldman Sachs or Wachovia Bank or you know AIG, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And while I was there, I started doing a lot of pro bono work for arts organizations and artists that I had been affiliated with before going to law school and realized how much of a need there was and how relevant a lot of the concerns they were dealing with were uh, to things that I was interested in in studying. So when I made the move into academia, it was pretty obvious that the path I would be taking would take advantage of what I really had the deepest well of knowledge about. Mm-hmm. And and really, I, I try to encourage my students to look at their own work that way as well. I think a lot of, so, sometimes it's easy as a student to um, to sort of look at every project discreetly and just try to find some way of doing something that's, that's, that's relatively easy. But I always try to tell my students that, look, you know, you, you're a rich and complex person. You come to law school, for example, with knowledge of things other than just the law. And your, your fellow students don't, don't have that knowledge. So you should really arbitrage those special, um, that special knowledge base that you have into whatever it is that you're writing about, right? Anything can be the subject of an academic paper. Certainly anything can be the subject of a, a paper written for law school, at least in, in my classes <laughs> anyway. And so I think that in general, the papers tend to be a lot, the work tends to be a lot more interesting and engaged and really more likely to contribute something new when the students bring to it knowledge that they have that other people in the relevant field don't. So, you know, for example, at Hofstra, I had a student in one of my seminar classes who wrote a paper about proposals to reform the evaluation process for figure skaters. Um, thinking about that process, administrative process within the figure skating organizations as a form of kind of self-regulation and kind of making proposals about how that self-regulation could be better managed. Mm -hmm. You know, and she was a former semi-professional figure skater and had a really deep knowledge of who the relevant players were, how the rules worked, how they developed over time, what the problems were, what they were trying to accomplish, and so on and so forth. And I think that was pretty unique among law students for someone to have have that kind of knowledge. So I kind of think of my own work in the same way, right? I bring a body of knowledge about how the law, whether it's copyright or charity law or other aspects of the law, affect artists in the real world, right? And then try to incorporate that into my into my scholarship to make the scholarship more engaged with the actual experiences of people who are affected by the law in question. Mm-hmm. Right, thank you. Now, before the break, we talked a bit about some of your history in filmmaking. You went to school for it, and you've done some uh, experimental stuff in the past. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, where does your passion for filmmaking come from? I got interested in making films uh, when I was in high school in California. A good friend of mine 
from high school had gone to a special summer program for students who were interested in in art and came back having made these videos that were really strange and it just it was just huge shock to me because I had no I really had no idea at that point in time that movies could look like that um and it it I was just entranced by them and so I got to school I got to college at Berkeley and I was um really interested in kind of expanding what my understanding of of cinema um and uh and then got involved at the Pacific Film Archive there uh where uh one of my professors Kathy Garretts uh ran a, a weekly experimental film series every Tuesday night and so I think I attended every Tuesday screening for something like 5 years running um to see all these amazing movies that you couldn't see anywhere else uh and you know gradually i started getting my own film equipment shooting films first in super 8 and then in in 16 mm on old newsreel cameras and uh applied to art school immediately after finishing or as i was finishing really at berkeley and so that's where i really kind of dug a lot deeper so i spent two and a half years at art school just making films on celluloid uh and learning how the camera works kind of developing a style and and so on and then first started kind of showing films publicly as i was finishing art school uh and continued to do so all the way through law school i was not nearly as productive a filmmaker while i was in law school i did finish a few films <laughs> while i was while i was studying um but kind of showed things on and off for quite a few years uh and then in i believe it was 2009 um uh, and I, at that at that point in time I was still making really kind of art oriented films and in 2009 I met uh Penny Lane and we decided to collaborate on making a a documentary film of sorts and we weren't really sure what it was going to look like at the time but it eventually became Our Nixon which was the kind of collage documentary project that we finished in uh well last year I guess um so Yeah, so it's kind of the evolution of my my filmmaking um kind of has currently stands uh currently stand there. I still make some experimental videos um although they have more of an essay bent than they used to. Mm-hmm. Uh and I'm working on additional kind of collage uh documentary films as well as as well as other things. Mhm. Now you mentioned our Nixon and we mm-hmm. definitely want to talk about that in a mm-hmm. minute but first uh while we're still on just general topic of film here mm-hmm. I definitely want to ask you as an artist mm-hmm. if you could tell us uh where your inspiration comes from for this uh, these artistic endeavors that you undertake Right right well you know I think it's mostly um engaging with and responding to films made by other people So in particular I would say I was influenced by people like Jonas Mekas, Stan Brakhage, Hollis Frampton, Jack Chambers, I mean a lot of these kind of classic American avant-garde filmmakers as well as you know a certain select kind of group of mostly Austrian and French experimental filmmakers as well like mm-hmm. like Kurt Cran or Maurice Somet 
I, I think most of my work was in one way or another responding to or engage, trying to engage with the kinds of aesthetic investigations, as it were, <laughs> that those people were um, that those people were engaged in. And uh, yeah, so it's resulted in a pretty wide range of of work. Uh, some of the films are made out of material that I filmed myself, so I did shoot quite a bit of eight millimeter, super eight millimeter, and sixteen millimeter film. Uh, but I also work pretty extensively with collage and found material. And actually, I just learned that uh, a a film of mine, a collage film of mine, is going to be showing. Uh, in the next month or so, I guess, at the Pompidou Center mm-hmm. in, in Paris as part of a sort of homage to Marcel Duchamp. Wow. So, you know, it, kind of the stuff is still floating around out there um, and uh, it gets shown, you know, sporadically <laughs> here and there, now and again. Um, so, yeah. Well, definitely congratulations on that achievement. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um Let's talk a bit about Our Nixon. Okay. Now, just for listeners, this is a film that you helped produce. It was uh, distributed by CNN. It's won several awards. Uh, Mm -hmm. Just to name a few here, you've won awards from the Boston Independent Film Festival, Nantucket Film Festival, and the Seattle International Film Festival, and that's definitely not all. Uh, What exactly was your involvement with Our Nixon? Right. So I was sort of creatively involved in the film throughout the entire process. Mm-hmm. Um, Penny Lane and I collaborated on making the film, but because I was teaching at the time and she was working on the film in a kind of a day-to-day capacity, you know, she was the director, and then we, we kind of co-produced, in other words, kind of creatively produced the film together. Uh, and essentially, it's based on the Super 8 home movies of H.R. Haldeman, uh, John Ehrlichman, and Dwight Chapin, who were three of Richard Nixon's aides uh, between 1968 and in 1973, they all resigned shortly before Nixon uh, resigned from office. And they shot about 26 hours of Super 8 home movies. So that's several hundred rolls of film during the course of the time they were working for the president. Um, that was all film that was provided to them by uh, a, a sort of a government agency. When they resigned, that motion picture film was confiscated by the FBI as part of the Watergate investigation. All three of them were implicated in one way or another with the constellation of scandals that we now refer to as Watergate was actually many different um, semi-related events. Mm -hmm. Um, But Watergate's become kind of the shorthand for the whole slew of um, shenanigans that they were up to. In any case... um, the, all of their papers were confiscated. Uh, everything that was in their offices was confiscated pursuant to the Watergate investigation, and those films were included among the materials that were confiscated. Um, and they just kind of sat at the National Archives for a long time. They were kind of low priority because they, they didn't have an obvious relationship to the abuse of power issues that were on the kind of the minds of most of the people who were interested in the Nixon materials. And the, you know, the clearance process for those materials was quite slow, you know, concerns about you know, personal material and national security issues, so on and so forth. So um, the Super 8 films, the, the home movies in question, weren't really preserved or made, re- weren't ready for release until uh, about 2001. And, and I heard about them from a friend of mine who was actually at the time 
contracted by the National Archives to do the film preservation. Uh, however, that did not involve really public access to the materials. Mm -hmm. um, there was a film, there were, there were motion picture film preservation materials produced, but not um, video copies. So there was really no easy way for the public to actually see the material. It was just preserved for future generations. So I was always interested, didn't have the money to do anything with it. When I mentioned them to Penny, I was then, of course, working at the law firm, and money was not quite as tight as it previously <laughs> had been. And so we decided that we would invest in getting the films to see what what they were, to see if there was a movie there. Because you know, we really had had seen basically none of them. I think we'd seen 10 minutes of like a little segment of the material uh, that my friend showed to us. But we really had no idea what the bulk of it consisted of, whether it was interesting, whether it was really capable of becoming a film. Mm -hmm. So sort of on a wing and a prayer, uh, I paid, I think it was $18,000 to a lab in Maryland to do digital video transfers of all of those home movies. Um, and so we kind of cross our fingers and hope that it would turn into something. And then, uh, you know, it, over a period of time, it gradually evolved into the film that you see today. I think it started out much more minimalistic. Um, mm -hmm. And initially we kind of are, our hope was that it would, you know, premiere at somewhere like the Museum of Modern Art or something like that. We kind of saw ourselves making a film for an art audience. Mm -hmm. uh, but actually, as we did a Kickstarter project, we realized that the potential audience base was much larger than we'd anticipated. And so uh, we started to think about how we could rethink our approach to the material in a way that would make it relevant and accessible to a broader audience and how to kind of manage the structure in a way that felt true to our kind of aesthetic inclinations but nonetheless something that uh, you know a mainstream audience unfamiliar with art films would find accessible and and sensible mm -hmm. um and so you know i hopefully i think we we achieved that um you know some people like it, some people don't, but um, I like to say no one said they didn't get it, right? Um, <laughs> so at the very least, I think people understand what's going on. Right. So the film is a it's a 85-minute uh, documentary, and I think one of the, the most unusual things about it is that it's composed 100% of archival material. In other words, we didn't shoot anything for the film. Mm -hmm. Everything that we used mm -hmm. in the movie came from the archives. So it was all a process of collaging these really materials from really different sources into something that was kind of a coherent visual mm -hmm. whole. And that was a really exciting um, and uh, uh, daunting process. Uh, of course, Penny did more of that on a day-to-day -day basis than I did, as well as our editor, Francisco Bello, who's really first-rate, you know, Oscar-nominated, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, so he was a, played a, a huge role in the creation of the movie as well. Now, unfortunately, we're out of time, really. But before we go, uh, listeners, faithful listeners of WRFL might recognize your voice, Professor Fry. Can you tell us? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, if you want to hear more about me or the things I'm interested in, tune in on Wednesdays from 10 to noon uh, when Katrina Dixon and I do a radio show called The Bindle, which uh, consists of an hour of themed music, a half-hour segment called The Homicide Squad, in which we trace the true history behind uh, murder ballads and then a 15 segment a uh, 15 minute segment called meet your blank in which we talk to professors librarians artists archivists and so on 
Artist Hours is produced in cooperation with WRFL and the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Kentucky. This broadcast theme song is Sandu, performed by Hugo Drupi Contini and provided by the Free Music Archive.